I'd like for you to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Second chapter, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The um, construction of this in the Greek is that they were running back and forth in confusion and bewilderment saying, Do you know what's going on? No, I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? Man, I don't know what's happening. So verse 8, And how is it that each, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now skip to verse 12. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, They're all full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day, it's just nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour out in those days, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, etc. Now the conclusion of this sermon that he preached, started preaching there, beginning at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. In Christianity, Pentecost is a magic word. Most Christians recognize that God did something at Pentecost that He's not done since. And pre Peter preached a sermon that's not been duplicated. 
And there was a response to that sermon that has not been repeated. And whenever a Christian gets kind of down and his spiritual life begins to wane, he begins to think of Pentecost. And I've even heard some people pray, Lord, give us another Pentecost. Send us another Pentecost. Now there is a sense in which Pentecost is a once and for all experience. There is, however, a sense in which whenever somebody is saved, Pentecost occurs again. For Pentecost symbolizes for each of us everything the church was meant to be and everything the church was meant to do. Now what is so special about Pentecost? And what is the most important element of that remarkable event that took place in history? Looking back on it, there were many things that occurred at Pentecost. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, like a tornado hit the town. That must have been a remarkable and amazing phenomenon. And there were cloven tongues of fire that sat on the heads of each of these apostles. They literally caught on fire. And they began to speak in language that everybody could understand. Now an honest interpretation of Acts 2 recognizes that this tongues that is being referred to is not glossolalia and it's not the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. What happened was that these unlettered apostles who had never been to the seminary, when they began to speak to all these nations represented there, these people of different languages and dialects understood them as though they were speaking in their own language. A remarkable, remarkable phenomenon. But the most important thing of Pentecost and what makes it so special is not the sound of rushing wind or cloven tongues of fire or the ability to speak in other languages. The most important element of Pentecost was that for the first time in history the Holy Spirit came to indwell a human being. Now the Holy Spirit came in the Old Testament time periodically upon different people for temporary endowment of power. But for the first time, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the church, to indwell the believer. And that was the significant thing that occurred at Pentecost. And because of that, because of that, these men went out from there praising God for the rest of their lives, even in the midst of terrible suffering. And because of that, they had authority over disease and demons. And because of that, they preached to every human being in Asia Minor in 24 months. Check it out. Acts 19.10 says that in 24 months, without aid of television or radio, they preached to every human being in Asia Minor. And all of it because of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, I want to discuss with you this morning that aspect of Pentecost 
that significant moment in time when the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believer. I want to give you my outline in case I run out of time and don't finish. Now, that doesn't mean when you get the outline you can leave. Now, I got the sermon, I'll leave. Here's the outline. The Holy Spirit is the abiding possession of the believer or the church corporate. The abiding possession. He is the activating principle of the church or the believer. He is third, the attracting power of the Christian or the church. And finally, he must be the acknowledged person of the church or the believer. He is the abiding possession of the church. Ye shall receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't say that you might receive or you may receive. He said you will receive the Holy Spirit. Not when some supernatural event occurs or when you become a super, you know, a superhuman or a super saint. When you profess your faith in Jesus Christ and you confess that faith outwardly, beginning with baptism, at that moment you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to distinguish between the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are those supernatural abilities that God gives every believer when he's saved. He might give one, he might give more than one. But he endues us or endows us with gifts in order that we might do the work of ministry with ease and pleasure. Now that's the definition of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They might be, they're listed in the scripture, prophecy, administration, helps, all those. Tongues, interpretation, all those kinds of things. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is He Himself. It's the fulfillment of the promise Jesus made when He said, It is expedient that I go away from you, because when I go away, I will send another comforter. And that word another is another of the same kind. It's what Peter Lord calls the other Jesus. Peter Lord says, Did you know you're better off without the physical Jesus? For the physical Jesus, if he were present today, and he visited every Southern Baptist church once a week, it would take him 600 years to get around. I mean, you're better off without the physical Jesus. But when Jesus left this earth, or prior to his departure from the earth, he said, I will send another Jesus, and he will dwell in you, and not just with you. Now, we get hung up sometimes on some kind of terminology. For example, I used to read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think, man, I need to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have come to believe, it's my humble and accurate opinion, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when Jesus places you in to the body of Christ. The word baptize is the word immerse. It's when He puts you in to the body of Christ. So every believer has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He has been placed into the body of Christ. Paul said, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And you need to understand to whom that was, that was written. It was written to the Corinthians. They're the lousiest Christians on earth. 
They were guilty of incest. They were taking one another to the courts. They were terrible people. And Paul said, we are all, he's writing to them, we are all by one spirit baptized into one body. Now Romans 8 says that he who has not the spirit of Christ is none of his. You know what I believe is to be the greatest danger of the church? The greatest danger of the church is to make our salvation dependent upon a relationship to an organization. So when somebody comes to me, a child comes to me, or a person comes to me to ask how a person becomes a Christian, I realize a little tension at that point, and I want to help them to understand that becoming a Christian is not relating to an, an organization or an institution. It's re relating to the person of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit, for He comes at that point in time to indwell you. He is the abiding possession now the tense of that is that He is permanently your abiding possession. He doesn't come today and leave tomorrow. As Ron Dunn said, my heart is not a hotel that the Holy Spirit checks out of every, day at noon, every Sunday at noon. He comes once and for all to indwell you. He never starts something He can't finish. So Jimmy said to Johnny, my daddy's got a list of all the men he can whip. And you're the, your daddy is on the top of that list. And so Johnny went home and he said, Daddy, Jimmy says his daddy's got a list of all the daddies he can whip. And your name is on the top of the list. And Johnny's daddy was a huge guy. I mean, like a wrestler. He said, well, let's see about that. So he went over to Jimmy's house and he knocked on the door and he said, my son said, your son said, you had a list of all the men you could whip and I was on the top of that list. He said, that's right. He said, well, I'm come to tell you, you can't do that. Kind of flexed his muscle and the guy said, okay, well, I'll just take you off my list. I mean, you, you, uh, 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 the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, He doesn't start something He can't finish. I mean, He doesn't take you off His list. All right, second. He is the activating principle of the Christian life. Now, hang in here with me and watch this. Something phenomenal begins to happen in the book of Acts. For all of a sudden, here is this man, Simon Peter, with boldness and power. With boldness and power. Yes, it is the destruction of that denial, don't miss this, was not that Simon was saying, no, I don't know him. He was saying, in essence, I don't even know that he ever existed. He denied him. And with curses, this same man, and all of a sudden, this same Simon Peter, his own fire, and he's standing before a multitude of people. Among those in that crowd are those who deny, who, who crucified our Lord, waiting for some excuse to crucify another. With boldness and power, he preached. Now, what, what, what happened there? What, what occurred that affected that? I tell you, it was the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you do a little research on the Holy Spirit. 
And you'll find as you do a research of the Holy Spirit that every time you find the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, for example, there is always movement and there is always change. For example, the Holy Spirit brooded over the chaos before creation and brought forth the cosmos. And in the first chapter of the book of Luke, the Holy Spirit brooded over Mary. And in the second chapter, he brought forth the Messiah. And in the 10th chapter of the book of John, or the 11th chapter, the Holy Spirit brooded over the grave of Lazarus. And in the 12th chapter, he brought forth a glorified Jesus. And in the first chapter of the book of Acts, he broods over this crowd of weaklings. And in the second chapter, he brings forth a crowd of witnesses with bulls. Now, how do you explain that? I explain it in this, on this wise, that he is the activating principle in, in the Christian life. It's not by might nor by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. Amen. Uh, Andy and Kim shared a wonderful book with me called Sidetracked in the Wilderness, a guy by the name of Wells. And he's talking about the fact that so many of us miss this great truth that the Holy Spirit is this activating principle. He tells, he tells about it one time he decided he wanted to know how to live a life of victory. So he began to search and he, he came up with a conclusion. Well, you've got to, live, you've got to obey the law of God. You've got to live for God. You've got, to, you've got to work. He said, I came to the conclusion that in obeying the law of God, you're not supposed to eat rabbits or camels. The question is, if I don't eat rabbits and I don't eat camels, will that help me to get along with my wife? said, asked Wells, immediately you're thinking, doesn't he get along with his wife? About me, so I'm going to, Wells said, if I don't eat rabbit and I don't eat camel, will that help me to live, to, to get victory over habits and problems in my life? The answer is an obvious no. Well then what will enable me to, 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 to get victory in my life? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. All right, third, here's the kicker. He is the attractive power of the Christian. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, considered this or not, but Pentecost was a great feast held in Jerusalem 50 days after the Passover. It was always held 50 days after Passover. That means that this occurred 50 days after Jesus was crucified. And it was a great day of festivity. And uh, most Jewish historians and theologians say that as many as a million Jews were in the city of Jerusalem for this celebration. A million. No small city. Now I want you to look, if you've still got your New Testament open, to, verse, to verses 5 and 6. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that they were there permanently. It meant that they were there for the, for the, for the, uh, for the Pentecostal festivities. Devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when they heard this sound, now this sound was this sound of mighty rushing wind. When they heard this sound, the multitude came together. Now, I want you to get this. A million Jews come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. It's like a first century Mardi Gras. And some of them gave up all of their processions just to have enough money to go to Jerusalem. And they made this pilgrimage, a million of them there. So that a, the focus of Pentecost was this Jewish festival and a million were there to celebrate it. And over here, there are 120 people gathered in a little upper room. 120 of them. They're the forgotten of the, of the race. They are the off-scourings of time. They are called disciples. But I want you to notice what happens. In this little group of 120 people, there was something that happened that brought a million people running to see what was happening. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the focal point in Jerusalem was not Pentecostal festivities, the Mardi Gras. The focal point of Jerusalem was this 120 men and women where the Spirit of God was dwelling. I love it. Without promotion, without advanced man, without advertisement, without hype, all of a sudden a million Jews were focused on the church. Now, I have, a, I have a strong suspicion that God is shamed and ridiculed and embarrassed and blasphemed by some of the things we do to get a crowd. This hype we do. I read somewhere not long ago, and you know, I don't know who it was, so I'm not being per, you know, using personal strength. Some guy, in order to get a crowd, he preached from the top of the church. He preached from the, from the roof of the church. I used to say, you know, you know, and you know, satirically, that one of these days I was going to wear pink leotards, and I was going to get up on top of the church, set myself on fire, and dive into a saucer of water. You know, that's about that's what it's come to. And we go all this hype to get people to come. Let me tell you something. I, you read the Book of Acts, and they never lacked for a crowd. They never lacked for a crowd. Wesley used to say, you just get on fire and folks will come and watch you burn. You don't have to advertise a fire. I was coming home to Temple the other night and just north of Waco there was this huge raging uh, fire, grass fire. And this nor that norther had just blown in. That sucker was out of control. It was raging. And everybody was lined up on the side of the highway and folks were coming from everywhere just to look at it. You just, you know, get, get on fire. And folks will come and watch you burn. And George Whitfield preached in the 1700s. Listen to this. One time he preached to 300,000 people in an open field without a microphone, without an advanced man, without publicity, without advertising. He stood in an open field and preached to 300,000 folks. Some of them came for miles to hear him preach 
and they rode on horses. They rode double on a horse, a man and his wife. Sometimes it took as many as ten days to get there. When the horse got tired, the man would walk in knee-deep snow. And they came in the wintertime and the howling wind, and they stood out in an open field and listened to George Whitfield preach. And there's no explanation to it except that George Whitfield read through Matthew Henry's commentary on his knees. On his knees. For he is the attracting power of the church. And when this Holy Spirit begins to take control of every believer, you won't have to hype it up to get people to come and see what's going on. Now why is, he, why is it that he's the attracting power of the church? Because what his ministry is, that is the Holy Spirit, is to exalt Jesus and he's the magnificent magnet. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me. And Jesus said again, and when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. So the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and this church, and he lifts up Jesus. And folks come running to see him. One last thought, please. He is to be the acknowledged person of the church, not the preacher, not the staff. He is to be the acknowledged person of the church. Now it must have been pretty tempting for Simon Peter. He thought a lot of himself anyway when these folks came to him and said, what's going on here? Simon, I'm sure, you, you, you know Barney Five? He sniffs, you know. I'm sure that Simon Peter must have been tempted to say, well, now, yeah. Uh, it all started back there when uh, I walked on water, you know. And uh, you got to walk on water first, and then you uh, you you uh, you got to do, you know. And you start, you know, all those things. Oh, it was because all of us. Uh, we, we met in prayer meeting and we prayed all night. You know how folks talk about that. We prayed all night. We prayed all night. It's not what he said. Without hesitation, like John the Baptist, he said, in essence, I must decrease. He must increase. Let me tell you the, let me tell you the clue to what's happening here. This man, born in Bethlehem, was the seed of the woman in Genesis 1. And he's the Joseph of Genesis 28. And he's the fulfillment of the typology of the ark, the temporary dwelling place of God on earth. And his blood is pictured in Exodus over the doorpost. And he's the near kinsman in the book of Ruth. And he is the son of man in Daniel's prophecy. And he's the suffering servant of Isaiah and and. These disciples with me saw him born in a, in a manger, raised in, in, in childhood, living sinlessly, did he? And we beheld him in his compassion and his goodness and his love. And we saw him die and we were there when he rose again and we stood on a mount, watched him ascend into heaven. That's the one who is the person of this church. And the Apostle Paul picks up on a theme and says it like this, And he 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might Himself come to have first place in everything, preeminence in everything. This person acknowledged, this acknowledged person of the Christian is Christ Himself. Before whom I bow without embarrassment and to whom I commit my life, the rest of it, without fear. Now, something happened at Pentecost that can be repeated here. And that is when a person comes to know the permanent abiding of the Spirit of God in his heart. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, for this moment of invitation, we beg your total presence, your complete authority upon each of us and may the name of Christ be glorified by our decision. For it is in Him and through Him and for Him that we pray. Amen. There are three invitations this morning. There's an invitation for you to come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. The other Jesus comes at your invitation and to your response of faith. Perhaps this morning you've already received Christ as your Savior, but he is not in control of your life. He's not the Lord of it. Surrender that to Him. Or maybe you need to come today to join this fellowship of believers. We invite your response as we stand to sing.